What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome, listeners, to our end-of-year review. See, Mark, that's just the beginning. I've got so many buttons on this panel, it's going to be fantastic. Are you excited? Are you ready for this? People never should have taught you how to employ electronics. Oh, you just wait. This is going to be the greatest show ever. We are so very wrong about games. We do podcasts about board games. I'm here with my great friend and co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. In honor of the year in review special, I have done the thing that I do once every year, and that is I have worn pants. Ooh, very nice. That's a nice change. It is a little chilly down here. So... On this year in review show, we talk about the games that we played this week. Then we give you our top 11 games of the year, our personal top 10s. And then the one game we both feel is the game of the year. And then we do all sorts of silly wrap up shenanigans of other stuff. We think (laughs) of games, the special categories, the the special categories. Okay. Mark, what did you play this week? I get to play Good Puppers. Good Puppers is by my personal friend, Disclosure, Chris Cheslick of Asmati Games. Good Puppers is the antidote to all of those endless, sprawling tableau builders with special powers. It gets in, it gets out, there are puppers, they are good puppers. Of course, I prefer, as always, the original title, One Deck Doggos, or the substitute title, All the Goodest Puppers, but the published version is Good Puppers. And it's a very, very, it's extraordinarily simple. You auction for turn order, you draft a doggo from the available display, and you play one. It does a special power that triggers triangularly with the number of dogs of that breed. But by the same token, you're encouraged to diversify, both to increase your point scoring capabilities as well as to trigger additional special powers at the end of the game, because each suit will trigger special powers, typically based on combination with some other breed. Anyway... 
It's one of those games where you get an initial hand of cards and you figure, I could probably puzzle this out. But the pressures are pulling you in so many different directions, you realize that that would be a futile endeavor. You know, it's, it's the kind of game where every card you want to play first because you want to build towards every different card in your hand. It is relentlessly charming in its artwork. Uh, people continuously are impressed by it. And I, I should really make more of an effort to keep it in my bag on the reg because it's so quick and engaging and so easily transported. I frequently forget about it. I'm impressed about how dry it is. It's a sort of container falling into the ocean joke. I thought maybe it was a dog urine joke. No. I, okay. I, that, that's more in your field. That was... <laughs> Whoa. I, I, have just, I have just been insulted. No, that, that was a bit of a deep cut walker. That, uh, that, that container fell in the ocean a long time ago. And... <laughs> All right. So that was Good Puppers by Chris Cheslick. I got to play a game by Mr. Sookie. It is called Woodcraft. And Mark, I am very impressed with this game. I'm really hoping that you'll give it a try. What you're doing, unfortunately, is yet another recipe fulfillment game. But it is a little bit more interesting. You're given all these projects that you can do, wood-related projects, making guitars, bookcases, flutes, you name it. Inserts for Vladimir Suki games? It's just so. If it's made of wood, then this card will come up and you you could could or could not add it to your tableau. And it'll have an array of different colored dice, or sometimes the same colored dice, either green, yellow, or brown. And... A certain number of pips in order to fulfill it. You might also need some glue or some other little tiny pieces of wood, like other little tokens that you have to acquire during the game. You're going to take your main action, and then you're going to use all these different tokens and stuff to manipulate these dice in order to try to get them to the numbers that you need them to get to. And just this, you know, rotating much, you know, Praga Kaput Rigney style, but not so much of just doing the same actions over and over again like you do in Praga. This is all sorts of like different action. You're cutting the dice and, you know, so I have a five, I cut it into a three and a two, or I'm gluing them to two, three and a two together to make it a five, or <laughs> or I'm growing the wood itself. Like at the beginning of your turn, you're growing trees and you can harvest them at any time. So the dice represent a quantity of wood. Just so. Oh, okay. I thought for a moment that they might be entirely arbitrary. And that actually had me vaguely intrigued, but go on. That's about it. It has an interesting sort of action. The main action that you're going to do is, you know, you take a tile and it goes around this wheel. It seems to be a lot of wheels lately. Vladimir Suki likes wheels. And uh, so so sometimes it's limited what you can do. It's also sometimes there's very good bonuses. So sometimes you take an order just to get the bonus. It also has sort of a point and income track where when the income hits, you're going to get as much as you've moved on that particular track. So you, there's some things that will give you, you know, point income or or income income or just straight up points, stuff like that. Very impressed. More on this later. Woodcraft by Delicious Games. Why do you think that this is going to impress me in a way that his past works haven't? Because again, just just be perfectly clear. I will happily play Vladimir Suki games. My primary objection is they all start to feel like the same after a while. Oh, just for that reason. This one does feel different. The, the dice manipulation was very rewarding, and I just very okay. much enjoyed this game from beginning to end. All right. Well, the, I, look, I'll happily give it a try. I did try reading the rules once because there was a, the, the possibility of my having to explain the game uh, for, for one encounter. And honestly, I made it about five pages in. I'm like, uh, my eyes started to glaze over. It and I is just... definitely... I, too, had an issue. And as soon as you see the components, like reading the rule book and even watching the video, it was still... I was like, I, I don't... 
But as soon as you sure. see see the components and start manipulating them and seeing how the the turn structure goes, it was it was off to the races. Well, that, that's the thing. And even to be fair, games like those that Vladimir Suki designs, uh, it's one of those areas where it's hard to differentiate the truly excellent ones from some of the more run of the mill ones purely by reading the rule book. As a general rule, as compared to some other games where it's a little more transparent, whether or not it's the kind of thing you're going to enjoy. Yeah, because in in all normal games, but in his games, a lot of uh, actions trigger other things. Yes. There's no way to really... He likes his combos. There's no way to really show that in, you know, while you read the rules until you see it in action. Anyway, Woodcraft, delicious games. Played another game of Robotech Reconstruction, the kind of sort of coin spinoff by Dr. Vitz at Strange Machine Games. This is a review copy sent to us by the designer. And I have to say that Robotech Reconstruction solves pretty much all of the key problems that I had with other coin games. And just to give you a sense of how it fell out during our last game, it went down to the wire. All four factions were threatening victory. It was clear to all four different players why everyone was threatening victory. So there was a perfect transparency as to how the victory conditions were being pursued. And it was a strategic puzzle on the last action of the game about how he could fulfill his victory conditions without in the in the process helping his partner win instead. So you had all of these built-in tensions between the overall goal of pursuing your interests and being backed up by your partner, but not helping your partner win in the process. All the positions of knowing how to affect all of your opponents. So despite the high level of asymmetry between the four factions, it was clear how all the four different factions worked. Now, granted, this was the second game with the same crew because we found the game intriguing the first time, but we found it. We found that the end game was rather precipitous, like, oh, somebody won rather quickly. And I have to say that this, as I say, addresses a lot of the concerns I had with the coin games as published by GMT. So frequently, their victory conditions are incredibly obtuse, and it is not remotely clear how to interact with the other players in a substantive way. And sometimes even the basic operations of basic actions can be rendered obscure. Now, the component issues to Robotech Reconstruction are real. The board is very busy looking by itself. It's got a lot of art from the show. And it's got very, very small tokens to indicate the units and very, very small tokens to indicate control of the board. But to its credit, it has, number one, a board off to the side that has, that has a publicly available track of how close each player is to obtaining their victory conditions. So you have to update it after every move. You have to be incredibly vigilant. Despite the fact that everyone at the table had internalized the necessity for this vigilance, we did have opportunities to actually wait. I'm at four, not at five. And then we have to count again and, and, and the whole deal. But without the track, the game would be borderline unplayable. So I'm very thankful that that sideboard exists. And at the same time, I wish that there had been either wooden components or something else, but I understand why it was designed this way because what you have is a very interesting, asymmetric, compelling game about counterinsurgency that is in a small box and is incredibly cheap. And given that I would, I think I would prefer slight usability issues and the possibility of maybe subbing in some cubes. I, 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 I might think of ways to sub in cubes to, to, to re- try to represent some things. Control, especially control of regions, especially might be the kind of thing that I do with that. 
uh, then pay, you know, a hundred, hundred plus, $150 for, for the latest Kickstarter or for even a lot of some GMT big box offerings, to be frank, not that they're overpriced, but they're certainly very expensive. So I applaud strange machine games for trying to find a way to cram a heavy game into a small package. It's the kind of thing that you see some publishers try to do. And it's, it's, it's a worthy endeavor. Now I do have some thematic concerns and I'm not going to let Walker shush me this time. In particular, one of the concerns I have is that the insurgent factor who, uh, faction who are basically freedom fighters slash employers of violence against infrastructure. Are they also a boy band? <laughs> no. Uh, the the pop idol is in the other faction. Oh, and they gotcha. are the anti... Uh, Minmay is in the Anti-Unification League. Oh, I just thought they would be the, the rival boy band and there was like some sort of like dance... A dance off thing, with yeah. a snap fighting maybe? Yes. No, no, no. Uh, okay. These people shoot people. Gotcha. Yes. The problem is, is that they don't feel as much like an insurgent faction by virtue of the fact that their victory conditions are about the long game. They play they, they, they play for the long game. They want the game to last as long as possible. And their victory conditions are impossible to undermine. Once they've scored points, you cannot take those points away from them at all. So they kind of serve as the game clock. That kind of role feels like, and it felt like to everyone at the table, that it ought to have belonged to the administrative faction, the faction that's kind of the powers that be. On the other hand, the RDF, who are kind of the civil authority on the board, they're spinning plates all the time, and their position is incredibly precarious. Like, okay, okay, this area's under control. Oh, no, oh, oh, I'm being threatened over there. Okay, okay. And then they run over to the other side of the map and try to... That felt a little bit more like the kind of victory condition that you might want to pursue as the... Insurgent. As, as, yeah, as the non-government employer of, of violence faction. I don't want to use the term terrorist. Terrorist is, is rather loaded, and I, I, I've tried to retire that term much like New York Times. So, I have a number of other quibbles about the representation of the RDF, about how Minmay is represented with the Anti-Unification League, but those are those are border concerns best reserved for fellow aficionados of Backross. But suffice to say uh, that there is a lot of thematic cohesion to what's going on independently of that, a lot of touchstones of, well, the, the Robotech version of Macross anyway. If I keep playing Robotech Reconstruction, which I'm kind of inclined to do, I might try to see if I can alter it so it becomes Macross. It wouldn't be too hard, I don't think, uh, but we'll have to see. Anyway, I'm thoroughly pleased with Robotech Reconstruction. It is a wonderful asymmetric area majority slash area control game, and it does a very good job of evoking some of the beats of a property that I thoroughly, thoroughly love. And the only misgivings I have are minor usability concerns because of the components, but at the same token, I can point to tremendous savings, both in terms of space and money. So all told, I think it's a winner. I think it's the best iteration of Macross in board game form that I have yet seen. And... Given that Strange Machine Games did a very serviceable attack on the SDF-1, it's not that it doesn't have any competition. So kudos to Dr. Vitz. I think it's a, a, they, that they've done a great job. That's Robotech Reconstruction. You and I got to stream a game called Black Rose Wars, and this is sort of like a giant whiz war type situation. You're all wizards. You're in this sort of academy and or log. Uh, sorry. Uh, it's the Black Rose Lodge. Lodge. That's yes. the word. I was desperately searching for. And you're going room to room. They all have their own special abilities. You have uh, tons of different decks. Your character could specialize in one, and then you're going to choose some random ones. And then at the beginning of each round, you get to choose cards from any deck you like. All sorts of different destruction spells, all sorts of different things you can summon, all different sort of strategies of keeping distance, closing, manipulating your, your combat attacks. You have two regular basic actions, which is punch and 
use the room or move and use the room and utilizing those actions, when to use them, how long to hang on to them for. All of these are interesting things that you can do in Black Rose Wars. It's not entirely stupid. And that's the that's one of the things that I keep forgetting. I remember the thing that I mostly remember about Black Rose Wars is drowning in wild card effects. Just an endless stream of weird things happening from the decks and seeing your friends do awesome and unfair things and you getting to do awesome and unfair things and summoning beautiful figures that can then go smack people in the face or who die immediately after being summoned. Uh, I think w- your your catchphrase was very apropos. That's Black Rose Wars <laughs> when weird things would happen. But at the same time, the planning at the start of the round is non-trivial. There's actually a substantial amount of, of interest in terms of determining what spell you're going to put in your quick slot, what spell you're going to put in slots one through three, and during the activation round, knowing when and how to use those all-important two physical actions. Because if you get killed, the only downside is you lose a tiny bit of momentum and you get sent back to your room to think about what you've done. But the first thing you do when you're in the room is you have to leave. And if you've already used your two physical actions, you can get into a little bit of trouble. So that that provides a little bit of sting to the death a tiny bit. I really like Black Rose Wars. It's utterly indefensible in the sense of sprawling Kickstarter nonsense. There's going to be yet more Kickstarter nonsense coming in. There's already over a dozen different schools of magic, each with 12 different spells. It's a wonderful universe to just play around in, and it's a nice little sandbox. Before Cosmic Frog, it was my favorite free-for-all smack people in the face game, and it's very different from Cosmic Frog, so I'm glad to have both of my uh, collection. You, however, raised an interesting question after our play, which I think is worth at least a bit of investigation in the context of the podcast. You said, how can you justify playing this when Guards of Atlantis exists? Well, it's just that sort of, like, you know, group you know, smack people around, you know, play the cards, do silly things, and and be done. To, to my mind, I, I've been thinking about this because I think it was a good question. They are similar in the sense that, yes, uh, rel- well, player count, they're not even remotely similar. Mm-hmm. Black Rose Wars, you want to play four, that's, that's how it tops out, but Guards of Atlantis can go much, much higher than that. The difference, I would say, is precisely in terms of how the cards work. In Black Rose Wars... In a given turn, you can pull a card from the top of the deck, look at it, and immediately successfully cast it five seconds later and get its full effect. Guards of Atlantis 2, everything you have to work for. And that's part of the pleasure of the game. It requires a considerable amount of planning, it requires coordination, and it requires a skillful execution of very particular effects. A universe of effects that, although huge when considered across all characters, tends to be relatively constrained game to game. And so players get to know about the thrust and counter thrust of how to use those particular things. So in other words, Black Rose Wars is like hitting the button that immediately gives you the dopamine charge, whereas Cards of Atlantis 2 is more about planning about how to evolve to execute this thing perfectly later on. And as a consequence, even though superficially they may seem relatively similar in terms of the kind of experience they have, the play experience is almost entirely different as far as I'm concerned as a user. Oh, for sure. It just gives you the same feel. Like even the death, when you die in Guards of Atlantis, you're pretty well out for that round by the time you move back in, depending on where the scrum happens to be. Where in Black Rose Wars, you could be like right back in it next turn with hardly any, uh, you know, a, a missed beat. It depends, but yes. Oh, yeah, all the, depends, I, th- I sure. think I th- death in uh, Guards of Atlantis 2 is definitely harsher. After all, it's one of the ways your team can lose by being killed too often. Whereas in Black Rose Wars, you can die the most of anyone in the game, and that won't 
necessarily impede your progress if you're giving as good as you're getting. Yeah, they have a death system very similar to Adrenaline, if you've played that, where when you injure someone, you give them your cubes, and then when they die, whoever has the most cubes Straight area majority, is going yeah. to get the benefit. Yeah. I really enjoyed Black Rose Wars. We had uh, a bit of a rough go at the beginning because Sidewinder had a bunch of effects that she had not encountered before and what particularly clearly explained in the rules. You know, standard Kickstarter sprawl stuff, right? You end up with a whole bunch of different manuals and you try your best to figure out where to to get the key answer to the question. But that having been said, I have had a great deal of success in introducing Black Rose Wars for people who just want to burn the house down. Uh, (laughs) Then you can just typically guide them. It's like, oh, you want the School of Destruction. There you go. They're like, all right. (laughs) Louis, for example, took to Black Rose Wars very quickly. (laughs) Death to all. It's like, wait, this card says I do four damage to Mark? Great. This card says I do three more damage to Mark? Okay, I know how that works. (laughs) (laughs) I played this tune before. Yes, exactly. So Black Rose Wars is not a game that we pull out very often, uh, but I am very glad every time we do. Agreed. Got to play a game of Ankh, Gods of Egypt, with the Pharaoh module. Now, the Pharaoh module is a rather substantial expansion that was released at launch, and it introduces a new type of cards, a new sideboard, which is the way you get those cards, and a new unit that occupies those sideboards. Long story short, every time you summon a unit in Ankh, you additionally get to summon a priest to any area of the sideboard, and any time a monument event happens, which happens relatively frequently over the course of Game of Ankh, you resolve all the areas of the sideboard. If you have a majority there, your units come back, and you get these special cards. These special cards get to be played before or after any action you do, and they come back into your hand when you get all your combat cards back by playing Cycle of Mott. Do you feel as though it's an incentive to use the Guardians more? The Guardians? The, well, the miniatures. Whatever, whatever, I, don't, I forget what their actual keyword is. The, the minions or the... You said every time you summon something, you right. have to put priests over. You mean the summoning action. Yeah, is it an incentive to use the summon yes. action more often? In my case, it was. I was encouraged to summon more often. And as a consequence, a lot of people were out of figures uh, more often. And I was therefore encouraged to uh, focus on those abilities that rely on your figures dying. Like I played Miracle a lot more than I normally did in a, in a game of Ankh. And I had heard that the Pharaoh module made Ankh feel like an entirely different game. And I think that that actually might be accurate. One of the things that we kept praising Ankh for, at least I did, was that it seemed like the impossible union of Reiner Knizia's design philosophy with Eric Lang's approach to excess. You had all these special powers that seemed to break the game, married to an incredibly tense, incredibly streamlined uh, game of action selection and action efficiency. And in a number of ways, both subtle and overt, Pharaoh upends that that delicate balance, and you end up feeling like you're just playing a lot more special effects. It brings it on. It doesn't bring it all the way to Black Rose Wars, but on a continuum from a Reiner Knizia game to something like Black Rose Wars, it drags it further from the Knizia angle more towards the Black Rose Wars spectrum. For example, there was a regular effect that was introduced by virtue of this module that regularly sapped people of points. And that completely changed the tempo of Ankh, and I don't think in a very favorable way. It was, yeah, yeah it, it wasn't. It wasn't fun. There were borderline take that effects in a way that other, even in the entire universe of Guardians and the 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 the, the panoply of God powers, you didn't see those kinds of things before. Now there are multiple ways to play the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh expansion. You can pick different Pharaohs, and randomly we picked the Pharaoh that caused the take that element to be dialed up to 11, but nonetheless, they all have a variety of those elements and just the action cards by themselves, a lot of them end up costing uh, people points. It wouldn't be so bad if if the points were just points. 
right? But seeing as the, the, when that merger happens, it's so crucial where your point marker is. Absolutely. Sort of manipulating that is not not cool. To reiterate, Ankh is a juxtaposition of an incredibly careful balancing act with wild special powers. And once you upset that delicate balancing act, it does indeed feel like a very, very different game. The Pharaoh module was interesting conceptually i don't think i'd ever want to return to it 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 took one of the defining features of our game of the year last year and upset it and now that isn't necessarily bad but it upset it in a direction that i don't think the system wants to go and as a consequence i think it's you know just too much now in addition it's also additional rules load and we only played with the pharaoh module because everyone there had already played the game before and that's one of the reasons why it had taken me so long to try the pharaoh module to begin with so as a consequence i'm i'm perfectly happy to retire it and although i'm very happy to play onk at the drop of a hat i would never recommend and i would probably counsel against playing it with this expansion so an interesting experience uh, a fascinating insight into even my appreciation of the base game's design, but not necessarily one I would see repeated. And that is Ankh, Gods of Egypt, Pharaoh. We got to play one of Martin Wallace's earliest designs, Brass Age of Industry. Uh, no. Oh, what did we play? <laughs> First of all, it's not one of his earliest designs. And secondly, it is not Brass Age of Industry. It is just Age of Industry. Dude's been in the... Hey, dude, yeah, that's the joke, Mark. That's the joke? Yeah, because it's very much like the other two brasses. I'm confused. It's really the, the original get, brass. I didn't get the joke. It's pretty It's pretty early in his career. Is it? It must be. Look at the look of it, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was that, was that a joke? That was a good joke. <laughs> no. It, like, uh, <laughs> Martin Wallace has been in the industry for a very, very long time. I mean, arguably his his first... Well, he's got like eight pages, and then I had to go all the way back to the third page to find it. <laughs> Age of that's Indus- a lot of pages. Age of Industry was published in 2010. He was already... Oh, that's ages ago. He was already a very famous and accomplished <laughs> game designer by that point with a number of titles under his belt. Yes, yes, Martin Wall is fantastic. I- I'm actually not one of his big fans, but... But I enjoyed going back to this. It really had some points that I enjoy much more than, than Brass Burningham, which is the only one I've played. Mm-hmm. I really like how uh, you're just constantly drawing from the same deck. There's no like rounds where you're given a hand of cards. That's much better. We also played the Soviet map, which is nice that uh, Age of Industry has many different maps that you can choose from. This was sort of had steel mills that were separate areas and you become the steel baron and you got <laughs> steel producer steel yeah. producer and you got you know discounts on stuff that was interesting uh the main difference i think is i guess that it doesn't have ale that you have to you know supplement all your your uh deliveries with but other than that it's very similar things i enjoy about brass i don't i didn't like uh in age of industry the fact that they had buildings that you had to burn just for the sake of burning just seemed odd. What do you mean? Well, I mean, like, they, they didn't give you any points. You never placed on the board. You just had to... Oh, the development. You just, the had, you you have just to... had to develop buildings out, you know, for whatever reason. Oh, I, I quite like that trade-off because you can build cotton mills right right at the beginning of the game, but in order to get factories and or ships, you need to put in some degree of investment into it. That's just discarding cards. <laughs> You know, really? <laughs> I didn't say it was a complicated mechanism. Oh, okay. You just have to spend the actions yeah, in order I guess to do it. Spend some actions, I suppose. But I mean, it would, it would <laughs> sure. feel. You don't have to like it. That's fine. It, it's not so much I like it. It just seemed an odd choice to. I think, oddly, I would find. I would think it would be fine if the tokens were blank. 
Okay. Where it says you need to work to get to these buildings, not just have these arbitrary tokens that you just have to happen to discard because they don't do anything so you can get to the, the tokens that you can. Sure. Maybe it's just me. The part about brass that really rubbed me the wrong way, the one that I, I strongly disliked was the notion of having to spend an action to take loans. It's one of the things where you have to do accounting. So I'm taking an action to take loans. I know that this costs me action, so I need to take out the exact amount of debt. So I need to calculate how much money I'm going to be spending over the next few actions, how much money is coming in. I much prefer Age of Industries' looser economy, take a loan at any time, repay the loan at any time. You're still under the gun. Money management is crucial. You just you don't have to do accounting on the front end. I also find the two-stage structure of brass to be arbitrary and not particularly satisfying. And I really, really like the fact that Age of Industry has so many different interesting maps. Again, as you said, we played with the Soviet map. The Soviet map has a... Uh, a slightly different iron and coal market. It has central planning. So sometimes the Politburo shows up and says, we think you should build in the purple region. It's like, I don't want to build in the purple region. They say, we think you should build in the purple region. But at the same time, in addition to providing an interesting constraint for experienced players, I actually find the Soviet map to be pretty good for new players, at least, because it gives them some guidance. Like, well, I don't know what to do, but the, the party says I should I should build a coal, a coal mine, so I guess I'll build a coal mine. Makes sense. That, that having been said, I have terrible luck introducing Age of Industry to players. There are the people who've played Brass who stick who stick their nose up and say, This is this is brass for babies. I, I wanna play I wanna play real grown up brass. Good the for you. Dark and mysterious brass. Yeah. It's dark. It, it's very dark. Mysterious. And then there are the people who don't play games like Brass who tend to find it utterly alien. And I don't know if I just explained the game badly. I've just had a number of bad experiences where people don't get it. Fascinatingly enough, in some cases, I've had the same person have both reactions to Age of Industry. I, I try to introduce them to Age of Industry. This is obtuse. It makes no sense. And then they suddenly fall in love with Brass and don't want to try Age of Industry again. How does that work, Walker? I, I How on earth does that work? The, the fault must be me. Anyway, one of the ways in which I know I can find a geek buddy on BoardGameGeek or I can find a, a, you know, a true person who, who, whose taste aligns with me are the people who prefer Age of Industry to Brass. For me, it's one of the, the, the key barometers. I think it's the money. <laughs> like, like, let's compare the money. We have Fair Age enough. of Industry, yes, terrible currency tokens. among the worst ever. Yes, and then we'll go to the brass currency, which is typically the best currency. Fair enough. Ever see that's that's the I think that's I'm not going to defend any of the components <laughs> in Age of Industry at all. It's very drab. Uh, it it looks like the original printing of brass, to be frank, the the original Warfrog printing that everyone forgot about once Roxley put out their their beautiful editions of Lancashire and Birmingham. Anyway, I, I'll tell you how brass. Burnham looks, but I, I can't see how it looks because it's... <laughs> but you can see the great money. Yes. Money's colorful. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoy Age of Industry. If you thought Brass was a little obtuse, I encourage you to try Age of Industry. If you find Brass appealing and would like to see it work in different maps, and you know somebody that has, a, has copies of, there were official maps as well as fan-made maps, I've tried all of them. They're they're all varying degrees of interesting. I don't think there's a dud in the lot, which is which is great. Some of them are calibrated to specific player counts, like the Great Lakes map is primarily for two players. Uh, but there you go. I highly recommend Age of Industry. It is probably my favorite Martin Wallace game, all told. Played a game of Sentinels of the Multiverse. It was great and stupid, as usual. Yeah, we 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 drew the card, we played the card, <laughs> and we did the damage to the bad guy. Many people said that all oh, all you do is you know you know play a card use a power draw yeah you know, yeah yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah yeah exactly yeah. we're not confused as to how the game works 
It was great. I had forgotten that a couple of years ago I acquired stitch markers, stitch counters rather, to track health, and they worked great. This is the first time I'd actually use them because mostly we play your copy uh, because we both have the huge monolith black box of, of back pain. Of silliness. Yes. And it doesn't travel well. In oh. fact, it, 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 it exerts a gravitational pull by, all by itself. And using the stitch counters just to track hero and villain health and using the health counters to track smaller targets that, you know, five to ten health each worked really well. And it was very smooth. I sent us the multiverse. Yep. Big swag favorite. Nothing I can say. It's just, it's, it's not so much the, the game, just the fact that with the plethora of options, it still works. So much character, so much personality. Love it. Lastly, for me, we got to play a game called Artisans of Splendid Vale. This is a Nikki Valens design, and it's a campaign system. You are this group of friends, and they're a group of artisans, even. Group of artisans, a, a giant red star comet meteor has struck this planet and has made all these different types of people flock to this area because it improves their artisanship. And this group of friends goes on little quests out around the village, collecting things, writing wrongs. <laughs> and the production of this game is over the top. It has these fantastic books for one for every character. You get your own pencil. It has a great spiral bound map. Much like, you know, all the new games are doing, you know, it has the map and the rules for that particular mission there. So you're not setting up all these tiles. Interesting dice system. Mark, I'll let Mark talk about that because he has a different viewpoint, I feel. But other than that, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to compare it to Crusoe Crew. Very, very much so. Like a, as soon as I open it up, is it is looking, Crusoe Crew is four comic books that you give to uh, uh, the all the players and they're searching the the pictures for different numbers and certain uh, players can see certain numbers. Other players can't depending on if the character's tall or short or can talk to animals or can do so much. And Splendid Vale does the same thing. I don't know if I have a different perspective than you on the dice-based combat system. I'm more at a wait-and-see perspective. So pretty much every at the table was cautiously optimistic, I guess. The first fight felt like a tutorial. It felt like we were just going through the motions. Everyone moves a couple spaces, does a couple damage with, with a certain degree of, of fuzziness contours. That having been said, after the first session, we all got a rather significant influx of new options and things to do. Now... My primary misgivings are twofold. Number one, this is very much a campaign system in all the ways that Oathsworn isn't. You start with a certain number of people. Nobody can switch in and out. Nobody can switch out characters. This is what's going to be happening. This is a new social obligation. This is what's going to be done. And there's no ability to reset a campaign. Right from the start, you're putting stickers on things. And, and, and that's that. And speaking personally, I've made it very clear that's not what I'm looking for in a game. That having been said... I've been thinking about this carefully, and I don't think that anyone in the industry can match Nikki Valen's talent for writing and assembling a team of writers. So they've done this, they've done Dragonholt, they've done Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, and that is the best writing in board games, as far as I'm concerned, all told. I can agree with it, but then we have our our mission, 
no spoilers here. I'm going to change. Sure. We have our mission, which is, you know, generic, you know, you are yep. looking after the one ring. Go get the one ring and, <laughs> and melt it in the dungeon. It's, been, it's a story that's been done so many times. Yeah. I, I literally almost dropped the book when when I was reading it. Like, I, I'm like I'm serious. Everything was yeah. so, so original, interesting. Yes. Uh, everything else. And then this yes. thing happened. Yes. I just, I couldn't. I, I'm hoping again it's a kind of tutorial thing because so a lot of what you're doing with the books. No, that seems like the overall arc. Well, right? we'll see. We don't right. know yet. All right. right. All right. I, I that's just it. I have faith in Nikki Valens and and their writers. I, I don't think that the books are going to keep me happy because a lot of the time when we're going to those pictures and we're, we're looking for you know you look for the number of the of the next passage to go through. That's mostly just giving you a list of things to do. It doesn't feel like I'm exploring an interesting place. It feels like it's just giving me a list of the passages that we're going to read through one after the other. But the characters are well rendered. I love the effortless way that Nikki Valens does representation. Honestly, it's just it's it's so it makes me so happy uh, about progress we've seen in the board game industry and quite frankly in culture in general. Uh, the way that they represent people with disabilities, the way they represent people of uh, different body types, the way they represent people with different pronouns. I mean, it's just, it, it's done effortlessly and so smoothly that, it, you know, just such a tonic to all the idiots who assert that, you know, well, let me put it this way. It's a great tonic to a lot of the way that Marvel tries to do representation, right? You know, the hand-fisted sort of, well, people like girl power, right? It's like, no, you don't get it, you idiots. So, uh, I have a great deal of enthusiasm for a lot of the things that Nikki Valens is doing in terms of the world building. I share your utter disinterest in the actual plot beats that thus far have happened, right? So, in much the same way, then, after my first experience with Dragonhold, where I was like, I like the character building system, I like the characters that I've been introduced to, does it have to be in this bog-standard fantasy environment that Fantasy Flight has made? But my patience was rewarded with a deeply compelling unfolding narrative. And I'm hoping that Artisans of Splendid Vale will do the same. I don't know that I have good reason to believe that it will be, other than the track record of a designer whose work I really, really appreciate. And I'm also have I also have misgivings about the combat system. I don't know if it's gonna uh, gonna earn its chops because, again, to compare it to Dragonhold, Dragonhold doesn't have a combat system. It just has a series of paragraphs based on whether you happen to be an archer or whether you happen to be SOL because you're not an archer. I, I'm also scared that you're comparing it too much to Dragonhold. Remember, this is not Dragonhold I, two. You're right. All you're right. right. I know. I'm not. I'm not. It's no, not no, 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 you're exactly right. I'm not. Right. I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be defensive. It's just again, I'm hoping that I will be able to appreciate the battle system as an integral part of the game. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy this battle system. It's you've got this uh, cooperative pool of dice, and every time it's a player's turn, they add three more dice to the pool, and you get to do two actions, which uses up X number of dice. And are you going to use up all the dice so your your teammates don't have any, or you're going to generate more, or? What you're going to do, I just, I love how that is playing out so far. I am curious to see how it works, especially with some of the new skills that have been acquired. So, for example, my character has a dog friend, and so I technically have twice as many actions. But if I use those to the max, I could use up the entire dice pool on the first turn to no great effect. And then I have two people around the table who'd be very, very mad at me. Yeah, that's what I'm getting interested in, because our, our, our abilities are going to get more powerful. Yes. We're going to want to use more dice. The, the actual battles will be more difficult, because I, like you said, it was sort of like a walk. It was a I, yeah. will, I will go up and I will smack him in the face. Yeah. And, yeah. and I will use my one die. And then, <laughs> But now it's going to, I'm sure it's going to get a little more intense, yeah. Yeah. and we're going to start coveting the dice. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I'm willing to sign up for at least a couple more sessions to see where Artisans of Splendid Vale is going to go, but I have some misgivings. Suffice to say. Finally, for me, I played Lanzarath Ridge. So, 
let me tell a little bit of a story. <laughs> Take us on an adventure, Mark. For, for a bit of context, when people ask me, you've recommended the Commands in Color series, what game should I start with? You've recommended the Valiant Defense series, of which Lands Wrath Regiments, which one should I start with? Often, especially in the context of Commands and Colors, or indeed historical wargaming in general, I tend to default to the same advice that, it, that was given to me, and it's been good advice. Pick the scenario, or the historical context, or the battle, or the front, or whatever, or the theater that interests you the most. So, Lanzarath Ridge is the Battle of the Bulge. No offense intended whatsoever to anyone involved in the battle, or anyone who, who's deeply enthusiastic about the Battle of the Bulge. I have negative interest in the Battle of the Bulge. And so... Despite my tremendous enthusiasm for the Valiant Defense Theories, for David Thompson, for various aspects of DVG games in general, it just sat rules unread on my shelf, but I knew that I should try it, and I really shouldn't have been putting it off. It's, it's a wonderful system, and the great thing about the Valiant Defense Series is that it's wargaming at its finest in the sense that you get to see the system iterate in interesting ways to accommodate for the scale and for the nature of the conflict. Now, is Lanzarath Rage on its face as compelling to me as the truly unique encounters that we saw in, say, Castle Itter or Soldiers in Postman's uniforms? No. It is, a, in comparison, a much more traditional engagement between a large number of Germans and a small number of American defenders. But the mechanical innovations, specifically with respect to how heavy weapons are, are dealt with, well, squad weapons, really, the way that there is a slight gesture towards a strategic element in terms of calling in artillery support, which is a very time-consuming but rewarding process, the way that the decks escalate, as is always the case in um, the Valiant Defense series, but now in decks three and four, there are specific objectives that you have to accomplish. You have to try to find an artillery spotter that's hiding among the medics, a lovely little cinematic element of tension because the mortars are viciously effective while the spotter's in play. You're desperately trying to find the spotter in uh, deck four because in all the Valiant Defense series, the defenders always lose. It's just a question of holding out for as long as you can of scuppering the machine gun just before uh, your your lines fall. I, of course, didn't have that, that last problem, actually, because uh, my best machine gun overheated in round one. Sweet. <laughs> It was a one in six shot, and it went away, uh, but whatever. You just can't hold the trigger down, Mark. <laughs> I only spent four ammo tokens. Anyway, it is a lovely system, a lovely iteration of a lovely system, and David Thompson really spends a lot of time researching. He clearly has a passion for this engagement and for the, the Americans who fought in this engagement. And the, the as ever, the background historical information is freely available on his website and is a joy to read. So... Lanzarath Ridge is a worthy entrant to a very, very, very fine pedigree of games, and it even won me over despite my intense disinterest in the overall subject matter. So Lanzarath Ridge, highly recommended, but I will probably be going back again when it comes time for repeat plays. I will probably revert back to the, to the engagements that I find more interesting, specifically Pavlov's House and Soldiers in Postman's uniforms, but that's just me. And those are the games we played this week. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage – 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now for our top 10 of 2022. So, Mark, I decided that we're going to have to uh, make a guess okay. on if there's going to be any crossover. Okay. And we also wanted. I also want to make sure we remember to talk about how we made this list. Like, what what was your process? My so, process. Well, like my process. Well, I believe in the Stanislavski method. <laughs> my process for this list. I went deep into character. Is I chose games that I am going to keep on the shelf. Games that I am excited to show other people. Mm-hmm. Games that I am excited to get back to the table this year. Not necessarily ones that are mechanically. Excellent, or or do something better than games I already have. Just games that I really enjoyed playing. I would tend to, and this will become clear if you watch the video of me going through the Pub Meeple ranking engine uh, across, because I started off with a list of twenty five worthy, excellent games from twenty twenty two, and whittled it down to this list of well, ten or eleven, depending on how you want to slice it, and. Uh, typically I would invoke things like what I want to play again or what was mechanically clever. Seldom, though, is it the case that it would be definitively like I'm going to use one criterion as opposed to another. Usually it was only in the case of very, very tough toss-ups where if I had two games that I really wanted to play again soon, then I'd pick the one that was mechanically more clever or two games that were very, very mechanically clever and then I'd think, well, which one would I rather put to the table again soon? You know, things like that. So I tend to evaluate things slightly more holistically, uh, but the things that you listed in terms of desire to keep, desire to bring to the table again, to show to people, that definitely factored into my analysis, but abstract creativity, abstract notions of things like novel mechanisms or evolutions of, of mechanical cleverness that did factor into my evaluation probably more than yours did. Yeah. I only had a list of 20. I could have had more, but just for, to try to keep the time down, I just Eminent, it, eminently reasonable. Yes. I kept it to 20. Uh, so, as some people have observed, I tend to speak a little bit more quickly than you do. It's true. Actually, I'd, I'd be interested to see the, the difference in times. All right. So. So you're going to try to predict which. Now. If this was an actual game, <laughs> like yes. say if we're we're trying to 
guess how many tricks we're going to take. Sure, sure. Like, or in lots of trick-taking games, I would bet three, but I am going to say four. Okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to, looking at this list, uh, yeah, I'm going to say four, maybe verging to five, actually. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, I think so. Not you're not going to say, you're not going to be very... Uh, setting aside game of the year, which we've already true, agreed true. on. You're not gonna be, you're not gonna be pumped up after I after we start with the very first one. But as the list goes, <laughs> oh, there are gonna be ones where oh, there are gonna be ones where on my list and you're gonna be like, no, <laughs> hard pass. But no doubt. So why don't why don't you start with your number ten, Walker? I'll just, I'll just reiterate the what we've done too. So we've made two personal top ten lists, and then we've already decided on a, the very best game of 2022. Yes, which will be the overall one for the show. So number ten is Endless Winter Paleo-Americans. Now, it has a lot of mechanisms in it. and it doesn't, One or two. And it doesn't go very deep in Thousand. into those mechanisms. And they added even more with you know, the expansions. You get like a root building and, and roll and write and all sorts of things with even more expansions. But with the ones that do come in the base game, even though they're not fully fleshed out, it is interesting to try to manipulate them in different ways. And lots to do. And the theme is very strong for me. The art style, just the overall presentation of the game, takes up a lot of space. I find it very interesting, and I enjoy playing it. Endless Winter, Paleo-Americans. So my list of top 25 had four designs by David Thompson on it. Uh, and this, and again, I, I want to give credit to his co-designers. It's just, he's the through line between a lot of these. I don't want to. So the game he co-designed with Roger Tankersley, specifically Sniper Elite, the board game is my number 10. I didn't think that I really liked hidden movement games. And then I played Sniper Elite, the board game. I definitely don't like the, 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 the core video game property. It doesn't do anything for me. It is, uh, uh, doesn't add any appeal, but Sniper Elite, the board game is the best hidden movement game I've ever played by far. Uh, the maps are incredibly clever. The rules very, very simple, so there's no opportunity for mistakes because a mistake can ruin the hidden movement game. And it's got lovely moments of tension for both the pursuer and the pursued. So, number 10, Sniper Elite, the board game. My number nine was purchased mainly for Toy Factor, and it came through with very crunchy and interesting gameplay. This is a game called Titan. You have this giant plastic disc that graduates down to the base which represents a mining space mining you've come to this planet and you're fighting these other corporations you're designing these interesting routes to try to get to to productive factories and down to the base you have these drones that are flying all over the place you know depositing bad you know like pollution into other people's factories you, you all of these different things going on i found it very interesting you actually get to insert pipes into the sides of the of the of the plane surface to represent you're going down deeper and and focusing around. Enjoy it every part of Titan. My number nine. My number nine is John Company Second Edition. Cole Worley is definitely an iconoclast in a lot of ways in his board game design. Usually I find his designs just on the verge of genius, often too fragile. Root has been the exception. Root, I think, is, is, is an unvarnished success. John Company is a fascinating ride, is how I would put it. Not always during this ride do you feel like you have complete control over what's transpiring, but it's a great ride, and it is much less fragile than its original, and I very much enjoy the original. It's a satire of imperialism. It's a satire of the kind of mercantilism as practiced by the, the eponymous uh, 
well, not by the eponymous, it's actually not called, uh, by the by the British East India Company. It's got lots of opportunities for negotiation and deal-making, while at the same time bringing you along a great sense of historical sweep. It is a long game and dense and not chock-full of important decisions, but nonetheless is a, is a wonderful experience and probably unlike many others that you would have in any given year of gaming. My number nine is John Company, second edition. My number eight, Undaunted Stalingrad. Now, Undaunted series is already fantastic. They've now layered on a level of tension due to the fact that the gameplay will have long-lasting effects on this campaign. Losing a mission means some of your soldiers will be downgraded. Uh, Doing better means some of them will be upgraded. You're going to be putting on uh, stuff on the cards. You're going to be getting better cards. Has all the original trappings of what makes Undaunted fantastic. Another David Thompson title, Undaunted Stalingrad. So my number eight is one that I... I'm willing to bet will be a crossover, and that is Wonderland's War. Wonderland's War is a bag-building, push-your-luck, troops-on-a-map, area-majority kind of thing. And the way it has all those elements come together is really, really quite interesting. Honestly, my one critique against Wonderland's War is that you you end up doing the same thing three times in succession, and so it feels a little bit more bloated than it wants to be. But in terms of the actual mechanisms, everything comes together delightfully with a lot of color and personality. And so despite the fact that it came out very early in the year, and despite the fact that it's a solid, you know, two and a half to potentially three hour experience, I've come back to Wonderland's War a couple times. My number eight, Wonderland's War. Very interesting. I really didn't think this would make it onto your list. I know you enjoyed it, but I didn't think you enjoyed it that much. Well, here we are. My number seven, Wonderland's War. (laughs) I'm surprised it isn't higher on your list. Mm, Yeah, it could have been. I wanted it to be, but the the length was huge. Not only the length of the game itself, the setup, the teardown. Yes. But just everything about it, I don't know what else to add, The, the, the... when you have the clay chips in the bag, just the bag building, the the very interesting tea table phase, you know, like the rondelle card yeah, the drafting, rondelle, yeah. moving as much as you want, but getting more corruption. It even though it takes long, the flow is there. Sometimes when the when you're not in a battle, it is still a little bit interesting. You still you you get to pick up on some things that you forgot or or realize, you know, it's like okay, now I I see what I should have done, or I can see how I can forge better next turn, or what cards I need in my deck. So you're still thinking about stuff. You're still wagering on those fights. It still keeps you engaged. I will be keeping my Wonderland's War copy. Very much enjoy it. This is by Druid City Games and uh, Sky. I shouldn't even started. It is a fantastic game, Wonderland's War. My number seven. My number seven is The Mirroring of Mary King by Jim Felly at Devious Weasel Games. I don't tend to... I, I try to build up defenses against clever and engaging two-player games, Walker, because I know I don't get much of a chance to play them. And The Mirroring of Mary King, in its published version, completely won me over. It's got tension of deck management. I love deck management as an overall sort of strategic horizon in addition to hand management you can burn your cards early and then regret it later the spatial jockeying of determining the possession of mary king the use of special powers at timely effects that the the subtle use of take that in a two-player game 
I really think it's well done. The components are marvelous. Jim Felly has been upping his component game, game on game. And again, like every other Devious Weasel product, it is utterly unlike anything else you're going to play on the market in any, any given moment. Uh, I was thoroughly won over by the mirroring of Mary King. Number seven by Jim Felly and Devious Weasel Games. My number six, Mosaic, A Story of Civilization. It is compared to... Uh, I, I think I might be having a stroke. Wow. Terraforming Mars, because very much reliant on on collecting a bunch of symbols to, to interact with other cards, to upgrade your tableau. It is really one of the best civilization games I've played, just for what I just said, the flow is there. Uh, the setup is... Incredibly tedious and awful. In- incredibly tedious. That's too strong. I'm sorry. I don't think so. How, how many times did you set it up, Mark? Okay. I've set so, it up. I have. I've <laughs> I, set know, up the I know. I'm joking. It's no worse than Wonderland's War. It's true. It's bad. It's, it, it's worth mentioning, possibly. But yeah. Anyway, let's move on. We'll move on. And <laughs> and and it's the fact that unlike other uh, civilization games, the end game goals are very clear, very straightforward, and very reachable, and and you know how you're going to get to them. So that's what makes this better overall than all other civilization games. My number six is Mosaic, a story of civilization. I thought I was actually, when going through my public rankings, I was surprised at how well Mosaic was doing, precisely because of my desire to play it again, my interest in the way the mechanisms flow together. And I I was somewhat surprised. I, I, I wasn't shocked that it was going to end up on the top 10, but I didn't know that it was going to that it was going to be that high. And I thought that it was going to be much higher than yours. So I'm very, very glad that you agree with me that Mosaic, a story of civilization is so excellent. I don't know if I would put it that highly in the grand pantheon of civilization games. The only other civilization type game that I had in my list this year in the top 25, and spoiler alert, it's not going to be in the top 10, was uh, Time of Empires, which real time and real time is a bit of a gimmick, but it's a great gimmick and I really like it. But the civilization chops aren't really there. I meant just for more approachability and a more recent game that people can Fair get enough. into easily. Fair enough. But the moment start people people start talking about it, you know, in the grand pantheon of civilization games, my Tresham defensiveness starts rising up in the back of my understood, throat. Understood. And I feel that he did. Anyway, number six, Mosaic, A Story of Civilization by Glenn Drover. Wonderful return to form by a designer who's been sporadically interesting. My number five is a tea game. It's called Tiletum or Tiletum. It is what we, like we talked about earlier, it's another game based on, on a rondelle in a way or a dial. And that part is what I enjoyed most about the game. You're either getting a bunch of resources or a bunch of action points in a certain action and figuring out how to manipulate that in order to get tiles that get you other actions that help you complete your board, that help you move around your merchant and your architect and your building churches and, and the timing and trying to outmaneuver your opponent on the map. All of this I very much enjoyed. I'm very much looking forward to playing more of Tiletum. Number five for me is a game that I'm certain is not on your list because I don't think you've played it. It is Swords Around the Throne, the grand strategic Napoleonic game by Renaud Verlac. This is very much a personal pick for me because Grand Strategic Napoleonic in a playable time has very much been sort of a, an elusive design goal that a number of designers have been chasing with limited success over the course of the years. And so when I played Swords Around the Throne and it achieved those goals, I was thoroughly, thoroughly pleased. I've since returned to it a number of times. The rulebook is 
relatively bad, but by the standards of historical wargaming, not all that bad. And the components are what you expect in that it is only available through GameCrafter. But for anybody that has any interest in the period, or for anybody that likes grand strategic wargames, I would rec- I would say that Swords Around the Throne is well worth your time to take a look. Renaud Verlac has been designing Napoleonic games on and off for uh, almost 20 years now, and I really think that this is sort of the apotheosis of his design work. It is... It is, I think, a triumph in terms of its design remit, and it's a design remit that I personally have a great deal of enthusiasm for. My number four is what has has me sort of worried for next year, because it was sort <laughs> of bought on a whim, right? And and shipping costs are so high, I'm worried that I might not, you know, acquire games like that on a whim because I don't want to pay a million dollars. So Oak drew a dress up game. <laughs> it's a fantastic worker placement game where you're pairing up uh, cards and worker placement and going up a scoring tree and and using artifacts and creatures and making sure all your druids have nice houses to to <laughs> to sleep in. You're making it sound so domestic. It, it was like it was one of those most surprising games. That, like I said, I didn't I didn't really much read into the rules. It was the fact that you get to clip on interesting things on your worker meeples. I thought that was let's just see where this goes, and it went, <laughs> it went to a fantastic place. Game Brewer, almost always. There's been like Hippocrates wasn't so great, but we got Stroganoff. We yep. we we got uh, Gugong. We've been we got Oak. They seem to be hitting it very often out of the park and uh, I'm very much looking forward to the next thing they bring out but this time it is Oak my number four well it, for those of you for those that are curious about saving money the retail version still lets you play dress up so and is very reasonably priced there you go my number four is Vengeance Roll and Fight by Gordon Kalea why roll and write when you can roll and fight and indeed it captures some of, although not all, the visual charm of the original Vengeance, which I think is one of the best graphically designed games that I own. And Vengeance Roll and Fight has that artificially induced tension, but no, but tension nonetheless of real-time dice rolling. And the, the satisfying element of crossing off many thugs pounding their faces into the dirt. Now, I feel like narratively it was very much a step back because you're not really given context for why all this is happening, which Vengeance did a very good job doing. But Vengeance Roll and Fight certainly makes up for it in terms of visceral engagement. I was about to say, point of order, sir, can you name any Roll and Write that has any sort of theme or <laughs> anything whatsoever? Okay. When, when in comparison to other Roll and Writes, it, it, it's pretty good. Point taken. <laughs> Comparing it to Vengeance is unfair when it should be compared to other Roll and Writes. Yes, Vengeance Roll and Fight is absolutely the Roll and Write for people who don't like Roll and Writes, and it is a marvelous package. I thoroughly recommend it. Vengeance Roll and Fight. My number three... I always loved Scotland Yard. I always owned a copy of Fury of Dracula, and Spectre Ops was a fantastic game. So this is why Sniper Elite, the board game, was an easy hit for me, because it goes right into, you know, my one of my favorite genres, World War II. It really simplified all of the problems that were in all of those past hidden movement games. It was moved along at a great pace, both... Uh, in a lot of these games, one of the positions is usually boring or procedural or or not as fun. I think all of the uh, different player counts and or positions are all very interesting. The Germans all have special abilities. The Sniper has great different abilities that they're going to use. Love everything about Sniper Elite. Another David Thompson game. My number three. My number three is Undaunted Stalingrad. <laughs> 
I will. The only thing I will add to Walker's excellent praise of the game is that the Undaunted system has, I think, bar none, the best initiative system of any game I've ever played. Very often, initiative systems are an afterthought, or you don't really care about it, or you don't. You're not given a, enough opportunity to finesse when your initiative is going to happen. But the trade-offs you make almost every single turn in terms of how to bid for initiative in Undaunted is so glorious. It's it's not all that. It's so much a motivational thing too. <laughs> right? I, yes, I, I agree. When you've either outplayed or you've been outplayed, or it's a tie just at the right moment, all of these things sort of lead to momentum and absolutely just, just like a feeling of change in the game. I really knowing that it. you're in your head yeah, yeah 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 number three undaunted normandy undaunted number three undaunted stalingrad by david thompson and trevor benjamin my number two came in at the very start of of 2022 it is a game called carnegie and the production over the top as well has this very interesting action selection where it's going to be different every game because it, it goes in this sort of row of tiles and it's going to uh, cause scoring in certain areas of the map and or let you do donations in certain areas of the map. You're building this office building, which you can put uh, rooms in or different offices that are going to trigger depending on what action is chosen. You have to make sure you have active workers there. You have to make sure you have money to do donations. It's this very fine line of, of, being ready for what's to come. So unfortunately that leads to unfortunate parts of, you know, newer players, or if you've misplayed that, you know, you're going to be behind. Sometimes it leads to knowing who the, who the winner is going to be early, but overall I just really enjoy, uh, the different things you can do in Carnegie. From one game of personnel, personnel management to another, my number two game is indeed Oak. Because I find the personnel management in Oak to be utterly delightful. Yes, there's the marriage of card play to actual worker placement, but then there's also the notion of having a personal tableau and enough workers to work your personal tableau that don't need cards, but then you might need more cards to better exploit the board. And there's a lovely give and take, and whereas in Carnegie, sometimes I found myself in a position because I'd put my workers in the wrong place, I would just have wasted turns. And indeed, you can tell you're doing well in Carnegie when you can take a turn and no one else gets to do anything, which is a fine design remit, it's just not for me. Oak, on the other hand, was an ability of give and take in terms of maximizing the efficiency, but you felt you seldom felt locked out. You could get where you wanted to go if you were willing to pay the price. Uh, Carnegie, for me, was was on my top 25, but it was, it was relatively low on the 25 as a consequence. So, but, but my number two, again, for me, also a surprise because in the sea of, you know, possibly generic work replacement games, you, it's so hard to see which one's going to be the next hit. But tried Oak and it immediately won me over and it crawled inside my head and it hasn't gotten out. Number two, Oak by Wim Hussens. My number one of 2022 is a game called Woodcraft by Vladimir Suki and put out by Delicious Games. I love this game from beginning to end. You are you have your own personal board where you're buying saw blades to cut up dice. You are hiring workers that are going to help you do actions and or make other actions better. You are you are growing saplings and wood. You're producing cabinets. You're uh, all of these things very interesting with a turn uh, selection mechanism of this giant buzz saw, and you're sliding along the actions, which will which turns the blade, which gives you different bonuses, which sort of stops you from doing some actions if they've gone too far. But then, you know, usual Sookie, you know, combos. Well, if I do this and do this, then I can still do that action because it doesn't actually move it. All of these things 
I'm so much looking forward to playing more Woodcraft. My number one, Woodcraft. My number one is Oathsworn, Into the Deepwood. Completely surprised me, sucker punched me with joy and pleasure. It was evident immediately from the rulebook that the people who designed Oathsworn had the same priorities for a campaign game that I do at this stage in my hobby life, and thus it is exactly what I was looking for. And the quality of the writing and the quality of the combat system and the pleasure of being able to experiment with different character builds and indeed entirely characters with no frictional cost is just added icing on the cake. And so... Uh, I am very much looking forward to going back to our campaign of Oathsworn. It is stalled because of short-term needs of the show and, and, and various other problems. Uh, but we've gone through a large number of unique combat encounters with a visual and mechanical differentiation. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of what Oathsworn has to offer. Oathsworn was in on my list of the top 20. But as it came up against other games that you can immediately introduce to people... It became apparent that a campaign game just wasn't fitting into what I was going for on my list. Had I had we done like a top, you know, other than a knotted Stalingrad. True, but you can go back and play that. You can play that normally. I guess you could play mm, a maybe. single mission of. I guess you could play a, a single mission of Oathsworn if you wanted. It's just. It's. Just, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Okay. No quibble. So. That is our top ten. Those are our personal top tens. Uh, there have been five crossovers, Walker. Sniper Elite, Wonderland's War, Mosaic, Undaunted Stalingrad, and Oak. You called it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew that there were going to be some that definitely weren't going to be replicated. I suspected Teletum and Woodcraft would probably uh, make its way on there. I suspected that John Company, uh, Swords Around the Throne, well, I knew Swords Around the Throne weren't going to be there. And there were a number like Vengeance Roll and Fight and Marrying a Mary King where I wasn't sure, but... I was tempted to put... It, it was not in the top 20, but it was very close. Sure. The, the Vengeance Roll and Fight. Absolutely. So... What, Walker, is our Game of the Year? Game of the Year is Guards of Atlantis 2 by Wolf Designer. It is just, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I will play it any time. It yeah. is fantastic. The, like I said in my video, just the the simultaneous action selection is just the icing of the cake of what everything else is great in this game. You really need to start seeing, it, it might might fall into a combat uh, game problem where if you really hate when you need to know the other person's deck or, you know, if they're going to beat you, 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 you might bounce off this a little bit at the beginning, but you can change your initiative. Like, because every time you upgrade your cards or two, one's going to go into your board, one's going to go into your hand and you can increase your initiative. So you can sort of change your gameplay as the game goes along and compensate for these indeficiencies against your opponents. In a pretty good year for games, looking over my uh, top 25, I would, I couldn't even imagine spending the rest of my hobby life only playing one of them, uh, except for Guards of Atlantis. I own about a thousand games. I play hundreds of different games every year, uh, partially professionally, partially for an interest. But if you told me I only had to, like, of a, of a game release this year, or indeed of the past few years, I could only ever play one game ever again, I could happily settle on a life of Guards of Atlantis if I had players willing to play with me. Now, that having been said, you, you've identified a number of people bounce off of it hard, but I've actually been pleasantly surprised and impressed with the range of different types of gamers that have taken to Guards of Atlantis too. 
and heavy Euro gamers really appreciate the deterministic aspect, the element of mastery, the element of really coming to grip. So sometimes even those people that love those system mastery games can really appreciate it because there's, if you want to approach Guards of Atlantis like a system mastery problem, there's lots of that to be had. If you value tactical flexibility, which is kind of what you were gesturing towards with the way you build characters, there's room for that. We've sung the praises of Guards of Atlantis 2 all year. Sometimes over the course of an award season, it can get very difficult, especially with the tremendous rush of releases we played over the course of the past two months. It can be sometimes hard to remember the, the, the games that were released earlier in the year. We had no disagreement, no difficulty remembering Guards of Atlantis 2, and it immediately upon playing it, we're like, I have difficulty imagining any game matching this for the rest of the year. And sure enough, Guards of Atlantis 2 is an easy choice for Game of the Year by Artem Nichaporov and Wolf Designer. Tremendous achievement. And I'm thoroughly, thoroughly glad to have been able to play it. I can't wait to play more. So that is our uh, top 10 slash 11 of the year. We're not going to go into the special categories and we'll try to uh, be a little bit more brisk lest we be here for 17 years. We are going to start with the most pessimistic curmudgeonly category. Off that super high that is Guards of Atlantis. It's only best to (laughs) rock it down into the... Earn that reputation we have of being too negative. This being said, this was hard. I only oh, got, really? We say we got we need three. I only got two. I went over the list over and over, and I couldn't think of a game <coughs> that I, I, was overly bad. So I, for worst of the year, I had to I had to prune my list. Uh, I went over it a couple times. I All right. Know. So what are your what are your worst of the year, Walker? I have Black Hole Rainbows, which yes. was awful. Just to take that game, right? Just a straight up take that random dice rolling LCR with some cards. Yeah, terrible. And the 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 next one was Starship Captains. It was. Very bland, very arbitrary, very pedestrian. I considered Starship Captains. What I've got is Burn Cycle, Tedium the Tedium, tremendously overwrought, and nothing really much happens. ISS Vanguard, again, for the Tedium, just overhead and paperwork. and I, and, I, I and, have both of those in another category, yes. Sure. And uh, Cryptid Urban Legends, which was a thoroughly abstract game trying to attach itself to kind of sort of a franchise that it didn't belong to. And the gameplay didn't really make a whole lot of sense. It didn't gel together and it was unsatisfying to boot. So those I'd say were the three worst that I played that were released this year. On to slightly more sunny uh, horizons, best expansions. You go first this time, Mark. So uh, this is a bit of a cheat. But these are our lists. We, we get to. I was gonna say we get to do whatever we, we want. We get to do whatever we want. This is our show. Stop us. Yeah, come and stop us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Come, come at me, bro. One of the best expansions of the year for me is Horizons of Spirit Island because for me it is an expansion. It's Yikes. an expandalone. What? It was. It's true. It, it comes. It, it's. It was purchased as an expansion. Yeah, for me it was an expansion. And besides, I I try not to. Uh, Undaunted Stalingrad gets a bit of a pass because of what it's doing with the campaign system and it's got new scenarios. Uh, but you know. Otherwise, you know, the 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 next expand alone of Spirit Island would always be practically number one on my list. It's 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 a it's a big thing. But anyway, Horizons of Spirit Island introduced a whole bunch of new low complexity spirits. A lot of people who play lots of Spirit Island sneer at low complexity spirits. I love low com- low complexity spirits. A lot of them have a great degree of personality, and sure enough, this was true of these. Uh, so, Sidereal Confluence Bifurcation. An excellent expansion to a truly excellent game. The amount of weird aliens it introduces in the mix is wonderful. And Rift Force Beyond, which did a great job of introducing a wonderful solitaire mode to a very solid two-player card battling game, as well as just adding more variety without overloading the rules uh, the, the, the rules grit. 
I pretty well just have all the expansions I think that I played this year. It wasn't very many for some reason. Oh, really? The two G.I. Joe uh, deck-building <laughs> game expansions, Cold Snap and Shadow of the Serpent, both both fantastic, especially Shadow of the Serpent, which was uh, gave you the big command center. Then there was Root the Marauder, which I'm surprised you didn't mention. Root the Marauder expansion came with the Badgers and the Mice. I thought those were both very excellent. I love the gameplay of both of those. And like you've already said, Rift Force Beyond. Uh, they're they're okay. I, I'm still not sold on the balance yet of the Marauder. I, I, I have to... The jury's a little bit out. But yeah, no, I like it. It's just not one of my top three favorites. Now into the bittersweet categories. I like the I like these ones. I think they're uh, they're interesting. One best game you didn't like. This is a game that you did not enjoy, but you can nonetheless see the merit therein. Well, I'm wondering, uh, Hour of Need. Do you did you remember? Was it in your top twenty five? It was. Do you remember how high it got? Anyway, relative uh, low teens or maybe eleven or twelve. Yeah. So there was a lot of good stuff there, but I just bounced off it hard. Yeah. I did not like Hour of Need. I can see that. <coughs> Sorry. Then ISS Vanguard. Oof. That's all I have to say. Oof. But but you're willing to? I am. I am because wow. it, it had feelings of that of that other space game we played. I could see where people would enjoy. Stars it. of Vicarious? No, the the where you went down to the planet and explored the map, and there was the oozes, and we we already compared the two games together. Uncharted, un unmet. Unsettled. Unsettled. My apologies. That's okay. It was, I'm the one that should. I'm the one that's making the comparison. I'm the one that should know the game. Um, yes. So, but so I can see with the the upkeep and the sort of the campaign where people might you, enjoy that. What are you saying, man? And last but not least, Crescent Moon. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so, best game I didn't like for me, uh, San Francisco. Tightly designed Kinetic Auction game. Didn't really cohere in a way that I found satisfying. I'm, I'm hard pressed to identify exactly why. It's not nothing really new. That was the thing. It didn't. There was no one thing that stood out and said, you know, where you went. I liked the auction system, but the problem is, I think it's something about the card mix that didn't really do it for me. Anyway, left me with a nagging sense of dissatisfaction, despite being mechanically sound and flowing along at a very, very nice clip. Space Station Phoenix. Very well done, Euro, but just uh, rubbed me the wrong way, especially how the options narrowed near the end rather than expanded. I mean, it was a clever conceit, and it was well executed, but just bounced off of it. And Titan. Titan's really good. It's got a lot of clever elements. I'm hard-pressed to identify exactly what I objected to, other than it's it's just kind of a, you know, sprawling infrastructure game, and I, I, I tend to have difficulty with infrastructure games that lean too hard in a sort of a spatial puzzle way. You know, the kind of game where you're looking at the map near the end of the game and figuring, where can I put this pipe? <laughs> and so Titan, I thought, was a very, very good iteration of the where can I put this pipe type of game, but just didn't cause me to alight with pleasure. Next up is Worst Game That You Did Like. So I'll start. Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape. Very dumb. <laughs> I enjoy it. <laughs> Contra the board game. I just like how it kind of sort of did an interesting job of, of, of replicating some elements of the Run and Gun franchise, but honestly, it was very shallow. Yeah, very silly, but I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it Yeah, for what, for what it tried to do, right? Yes, I can yeah, certainly yeah. see why you'd prefer Contra the board game to Hour of Need. I mean, they're both modular deck system games by the Sadler Brothers, and I prefer Hour of Need, but I can completely see why you'd bounce off of Hour of Need and find Contra good for some silly fun. And uh, Stars of Akarios, because I really enjoyed the first couple of sessions, and then we landed on a planet. And then we kept doing the same space battle over and over. So, 
right. Stars of Carius is also on the top of my list. Next up is Northgard Uncharted Lands. Mm. It was. It's a terrible game. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but it's just. It just puts me back to you know, uh, troops on a map. You know, sure. Special powers, crazy leaders, monsters, and Frostpunk. Oh my lord. <laughs> Way too long. I, I think I've narrowed it down, Mark. Mm-hmm. Frostpunk, like games like this that keep hitting you in the face over and over again. Yep. When you can gauge how hard you're getting hit in the head and take that to just the right point, <laughs> right? And then, and, then, and then play that properly to get rewarded by either finishing the game early or, or succeeding. Mm-hmm. I love that type of game. This Frostpunk does not do that. It is you are going to get punched in the head <laughs> for 12 rounds. There is no way to change that. Welcome to the punch. <laughs> I st- I'm going to keep playing it. Uh, uh, Huey and I love it. So, uh, sorry, love is a strong word. Huey and I enjoy <laughs> what it brings to the table. Sure. But oh, and it brings a lot to the table. It brings a lot to the table. So, biggest disappointments, Walker. What were your three biggest disappointments over the course of the year? Burn Cycle, like you've already talked about. Yeah. It it just looks so good. The whole premise, the whole story behind it. This would have been on my list if I wouldn't, weren't already very wary of Chip Theory games. Legitimate entry. Then, uh, I was looking forward to Hidden Leaders. The art style, fantastic. The gameplay on paper seemed very interesting. Hidden this is cute. It's fun. It is. It is. But it just seemed very arbitrary. Like the, the really the randomness. Is that just because I keep beating you? In which you got the cards, and then and then <laughs> it, it was very random and arbitrary. Okay, but still love it. Looking forward to their next uh, game that they're coming out with. Almost innocent, hidden innocent, something, something, something. Same art. And my last but not least is Merchants of the Dark Road. Once again, mm. a great premise. Interesting, like actual like magnetic spin dial that really didn't do anything. Gotta have magnets. Uh, it, it just fell flat. Components fantastic. Had promise. Didn't enjoy it. Gave it many chances. Merchants of the Dark Road. My three big, biggest disappointments. Number one is Stars of Akarios <laughs> from... Such enthusiasm to crushing disappointment. Perseverance, the Castaway Chronicles. Mind Clash Games just disappointing me thoroughly. You know? Yeah. Sort of their their first real misfire, as far as I'm concerned, from very very successful designs. Even the one that I that I don't really want to go back to, namely Tricarion, is is a very solidly designed Euro that has some unique elements to it. Perseverance, the Castaway Chronicles, lovely plastic dinosaurs. So forgettable. Yeah. So for, so I I barely remembered it. That's, when, that's why I, that's why I just mentioned like you yeah. Said, I, I was thinking about it today and I just didn't even like I didn't remember and then you brought it up so I was just like I I don't even. And finally, Crescent Moon because I love asymmetric games. I love asymmetric games with negotiation, but so, every once in a while you get one of those asymmetric negotiation games where there's not enough fluidity to negotiate, and so nobody really cuts any interesting deals, and you just sit in your corner and you do your thing, and there's not enough rounds to do anything interesting. Crescent Moon. Functional, but very disappointing. So our, those were our biggest disappointments. Now, on to our biggest pleasant surprises. Mark, what games... S- pleasantly surprised you this year. 
despite the fact that we are still enthusiasts to a certain extent of some of Kuhlman and Not's output, I entered Trud Bag Legends with zero expectations. And I was very pleased. Yeah. I thought it was cute. It did bag building in a kind of interesting way. The, the activation system got out of your way, whereas a lot of other adventure games end up being cumbersome. Trud Bag Legends was very, very quick, effervescent, knew that the proper amount of narrative text was as minimal as possible while nonetheless giving the settings. I thought it was great. I was thoroughly, thoroughly impressed. Yeah, I love the fact that they didn't now they have a separate combat board, yeah. Which, which was odd. Why did they even have miniatures at all, really? Because you just the, sort of threw them on the board. It's Simon. Yeah. The mirroring of Mary King. I spoke before about how you know I, I played it online, but again, tabletop simulator just sometimes does, doesn't do things justice, and so much more satisfying in person. And finally, spots from John Perry. He the master of small box games along with the uh, same crew that brought us the wonderful Wavelength. Uh, Spots is a delightfully surprising dice placement game. I was expecting initially some sort of uh, basically a child's affair uh, because the art is so adorable and it's very much leaning into, look look at all these cute Dalmatians. Uh, But Spots is a great dice game. Sure, I'm surprised you don't have any of these. I'm cheating here. I have five. Go for it. First one, Tidal Blades Banner Festival. Had no expectation of this game. Wanted to pick it up only because I really enjoyed Title Blades, but I felt that that title was very divisive, and I'm surprised that they used that. See, it, it couldn't be on my biggest surprises because you'd already been pumping it up for a number of weeks. Uh, I liked I liked it, but... Yeah, I, it, it had a Brian Boru feel to it. Title Blades Banner Festival. Tiny Turbo Cars. I thought it, it was a fantastic little game. You, you know, move the little handles around. Solved a lot of problems of racing games. I thought it was going to be great, and it was great. How could it be a pleasant surprise? (laughs) Because when you want it to be good, it's very seldom is. Paint paint the Roses, yet another game. Fantastic. Wormholes. I had no no thoughts of it going into it. It was like yet another AGE, you know, punch it out game. AEG. AEG, sorry. Great game. Puzzle solving. Figuring out, like, cool roots to do last but not least long shot the dice game had no expectations of this everyone who played it loved it i only like it so there you go and uh, wormholes almost made it on uh, best games that i don't like gotcha now the ones that got away these are games that came out this year but for whatever reasons mostly screw you canada we didn't get to play them and for other reasons uh, so first up for me, this is a bit of an odd choice. Aeon Trespass Odyssey. <laughs> Why did it get away? Because I sold it. <laughs> but a lot of people really seem to be enjoying it, and a number of people are telling me that I should be regretting not having played it. Uh, but guess what? I don't. Uh, another one is Revive. I suspect this is... Uh, th- these are by designers we absolutely adore, the same people who put a Capital Lux 2 Generations. They obviously don't like us. Yeah, they they, uh, they they clearly are subscribing to the Screw You Canada theory. of, And there's this... Um, I think it's pronounced Frosthaven. It's, uh, I don't know, it's probably nothing. Faux Steven. I think it's for Steven. Oh, okay. It's like a birthday present. Well, that's game. why I didn't get one. Yeah, it's okay, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's probably no good. Yeah, I, I think it's like a, an iteration of another game, like a second edition or something, and the first one was <laughs> awful. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, The ones that got away. My Father's Work. Now, I own this game. I have it. <laughs> I, I can okay. look over here, and it's right here. Okay. And for whatever reason... I didn't play it. <laughs> we we played a partial game. Oh, and, right, And we right. just never got back to it. Okay, sure. I, I also have Revive on my list. 
For some reason, we couldn't get a copy of Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape. I really wish I had a chance to play it. Um, <laughs> that would have been great. Um, a lot of people are talking about Heat at the moment. Uh, I have no expectations of it, but I still want to play it. And like you said, the game that is for Steven. <laughs> All right. So new, this new category, Mark. New, new, new category of categories, even. This is the best game we discovered from the past. This now, is the Regicide Memorial Award. But but I have some games that aren't just from last year. Sure. So these are just games that I've never played before that I think are worth mentioning. So the first game I'm going to talk about is the game that I, I invented this, this category for, and that's Capital Lux 2 Generations. <laughs> what a fantastic game. If there's any way you can get an opportunity to play this game, I would suggest it. Everything about it is great. Replayability. Interesting gameplay. Same designers as Revive. Same designers as Revive. I have Great Wall on here. We had great games of Great Wall. We just got it in very late. It is a Great Wall. Time Barons. Loved that game. Fantastic little game. And then last... John Perry knows his stuff, that's for sure. A game that came out at the very last, uh, very end of 2021. Uprising. Great cooperative game. You bounced off it, but... Everyone else that I've played it with, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, all love it. I bounced off it because it's bad. Um, they have an expansion coming out with more stuff, so look forward to more streams of that. Uprising, The, la- the Last Emperor. Curse of the Last Emperor. Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor. I, as well, have Capital X Two Generations. I also have The Great Wall. Not surprising to, to, to see that overlap. It was definitely one of the, one of the best Euros of the last year. And not from a company that you would expect solid mm-hmm. euros from. And I also have a deeply personal pick, namely Weasel Tech. This is the indie mech miniatures campaign game where you get to live out all your uh, soap opera mech combat fantasies, of which I have a lot. So <laughs> had a great time with 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 uh, Weasel Tech campaign. I've gone through a number of operations. Maybe I'll go back to it. Maybe I won't. But nonetheless, the stories that got told were very compelling to me. An honorable mention here because I don't really know where this belongs, is the game Persuasion, because it was originally released, quote-unquote, prior to this year, but it's only available online on the designer's Itch.io page thus far. I don't know if it's looking for a publisher, uh, but I hope it is. I hope it eventually gets published and sees a wider audience, because it's a wonderful, wonderful game of Austinian doublethink and courtship and hilariousness and information management. So it's kind of... An unpublished game, and it's also kind of a game that's older, so I, I give it an honorable mention under the best game we, I discovered from the past. So usually next up, we talk about stuff for this coming year, but we must peek back before looking forward. Yet another new category, Mark. Isn't this exciting? New stuff. I can't keep up with all this change. All right, so we're going to talk about things we talked about on the last end of year agenda, so things that we've sort of, you know predicted or thought of and first things the ones that got away so ones that we didn't get to play and i got to play all the ones that were on my list it looks like uh no there might be one on there that you didn't play on your list we'll see though so mine were arc nova which was a fine game you're making a zoo i didn't really super stand out for me it was like a terrible giant deck which you never got the cards you wanted boon lake which which was a super flop and Uh, Cascadia, which was exactly what it 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 was. Cascadia was Cascadia. Yes, that is that is very well put. So the ones that got away from me were Hour of Need, Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor, 
uh, Hour of Need, I mostly enjoy. I, I defend it. it. It's it's probably my second favorite of the modular deck system games. It's it's no Street Masters, but it has its own merits. Uh, once again, I've talked. I talk a lot about the modular deck system games in an episode of So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad. So if you want like forty five minutes of me talking about modular deck system games, you can do it there. Uprising: Curse of the Last Emperor is probably one of the biggest disagreements we have over games over the last little while. I think it's a very very badly designed game. I talked about missing Red Flag over Paris. Still haven't had a chance to track it down. The problem is, historical wargaming is a real tough lift for me because I don't really have a local audience that's into it, and we don't play a whole lot of two-player games anyway. I never did end up playing Imperial Steam, which was another one. Uh, You had kind of decided that it wasn't top tier, uh, and so we ended up sending it to a patron. And Botoku, which I was able to play, and and thought it was a solid, medium-heavy Euro experience with lovely art. So I was glad to have been able to play that. Moving on. Now, what what is it that we were looking forward to last year? The things that we were anticipating, the ones that we were hoping that were going to be good. Walker, what did you have last year that we were looking forward to? Look, I was looking forward to Wonderland's War, and, and it was highly agreeable with both of us. Absolutely. Frostpunk, which I just talked about, so I won't go into it. It's, it was, it is painful and punishing. <laughs> and Hidden Leaders, which I also uh, talked about. I got, uh, I was looking forward to it. I still have it. I, I... I would play it happily, but I I don't like how the end game sort of works out. Fantastic art. The art blows me away. I was looking forward to Guards of Atlantis 2, proving that I am indeed some kind of shining prophet. I was looking forward to John Company 2nd Edition. Both of those games pleased me in more or less the way that I expected them to. And I was also looking forward to Horizon Wars Midnight Dark, which sadly... Uh, the world of indie miniatures games where they're full of, of one-person shops, progress can come in fits and starts. Horizon Wars Midnight Dark is not yet ready for press, so uh, we'll see what happens in the near future. I'm still looking forward to Horizon Wars Midnight Dark. Very quickly, games that we wanted to be good but were so bad. I had Titan, which turned out to be... A, a- the toy value was as high as I thought, or even more so. But that, it had solid design. That, that giant board was so ridiculously big. Yeah. And yeah, I felt it was good. Artisans of Splendid Vale, the jury is still out. And Darkest Dungeon, uh, yeah, was bad. I don't know. I know, but it, it was it was pedestrian. Yeah, yeah, and another campaign that we desperately yeah, like. Don't say, yeah, exactly. So if you did not have a campaign system, <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you really enjoyed Darkest Dungeon, the video right. game. This is perfectly fine. Lots of components, sprawl, huge, interesting ideas. Last year, I predicted the things that I wanted to be good but thought were going to be bad were Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape, which is bad but in an enjoyable way. So I'm going to chalk myself up once again, another profit point on that one. And ISS Vanguard nailed it. (laughs) I, I specifically said... Uh, as a quote, I said that we were going to have awesome-looking mechanized suits that we wouldn't get around, uh, that we wouldn't be able to play around with, and instead we'd just be allocating dice for some nonsense. I was exactly right. <laughs> it's true. Nailed it. And that is the end of our look back. So now our real looking forward to twenty twenty three. Mark, what are your most anticipated games of 2023? Once again, Horizon Wars Midnight Dark. Roby Jenkins is my favorite indie miniatures rule set publisher. In fact, he's my favorite miniatures uh, rule set publisher, period. Horizon Wars Simpliciter, the original one published by Osprey, was a great mech 
infantry tank combined arms miniatures game, and he's learned a lot since publishing that. Horizon Wars Zero Dark is a fabulous game, and he's importing some of the elements of Zero Dark into Midnight Dark as well as Infinite Dark. I think he hasn't done quite a good job of naming the games so that they're easy to differentiate, but whatever. That's his call. Horizon Wars Midnight Dark probably will come up this year. Imperium Horizons, which I hope will be the last game with Imperium in the title. 16 new factions. 19. 19, sorry. A huge quantity. More than double the existing number of nations. Very much looking forward to that. Nigel Buckle and David Zirtze. And the latest by Splatter, Horseless Carriage. Oh, true that. Some people in Europe are already getting their copies. I saw uh, one of our listeners in Europe has their copy in hand. So that surely means that we'll have ours in, I don't know, eight months. I'm sure. If we're lucky. If we're lucky. Queen's Dilemma, Mark. Looking forward to that. Oh, is that going to come out next year? You're an optimistic man. I'm very optimistic. (laughs) Oof. One can hope. Yeah. We have Rise and Fall, which I'm also hoping might come out this year. Mm. It is a game that... Christophe, me, Christophe Belanger. Give me very much barony vibes with all sorts of Absolutely. special workers. And then Darwin's Journey, which is very low on the list of, of oh my goodness, will this yeah. game ever come out. I completely forgot yeah, about Frost, that game. Frosthaven is lower, but not by much. I can't, be, I, for, I forgot about that entirely. It was pretty good. It was, it was interesting. I'm looking to see that like the actual visual components, see right. it on the table, feeling the flow when it's actually in front of me. And those were our most anticipated games of 2023. Hopefully, at the beginning of 2024, we'll be able to look back and say that they were good. Because our picks for 2022 were pretty solid. It's true. And best to end on maybe a note of dour pessimism. A game you want to be so, so good, but you know it won't be. So, first off for me, I've got Freedom 5, a Sentinel Comics board game. There's no reason to believe that this is going to be any good, but there is reason to believe that it will give pretty miniatures of our of our favorite characters from Sentinels of the Multiverse. Just so. And that is probably the most reason why we why you we bought it in the first place. Yes. I love how Walker, when it's something that I purchased, we're a collective. When it's something that Walker purchased, he's an individualist. Mine. Steam Up, A Feast of Dim Sum, a game I pledged for exclusively because it has adorable little plastic pieces of dim sum. I will eat dumplings at any meal of any day. I don't even care what kind of dumpling it is. Dumpling can mean many different things to many different cultures. I have yet to eat a dumpling that I didn't love, and I love dim sum. Oh my goodness. I just want the pieces walk. That sushi boat that is coming in, I almost put on the list as well. Sure. And finally for me, Snapship's Tactics, where you get to build your little toy and then engage in pew-pew space battles. They've already sent out STLs of additional components that you can put on your little toy spaceships. Nice. And uh, past toy spaceships, I'm not optimistic. <laughs> I also have Sentinels of the Multiverse, the board game. I also have Slay the Spire, yet another video adaptation of a, to a board game. I don't know. I have enough faith in... I'm in a cautious... I'm in a cautious... Look, Imperium the Contention was so good and so unanticipated, and Slay the Spire is already a card game. <laughs> so, I don't know. I've, I've, I'm, then, I'm cautiously optimistic. And then we have Title Blades 2, Rise of the Unfolders. <laughs> forgot about that title yet another rise of the unfolders the event of the happening another <laughs> campaign system the occurrence of the eventing which will look fantastic but who knows rise, I, of, I, the unfold- rise of the unfolders is, dawn, do, of, the, dawn do not, of the fabric softer do not bring these guys to laundry day yeah, I know, is all I know, i'm saying oh that, that'd be a nightmare 
So that is going to do it for this year. Thank you very much. I think it was a great year of games of 2023. Not necessarily for me a great year of gaming, but whatever. The past is past. We're looking forward to the future. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Mark. We appreciate it a great deal. Mark, no. What is your favorite movie of 2022? Decision to leave. Mine is R, R, R. Thank you very much for joining us. That's all the time we have for this week, for this year even. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.